But if you were able, I would encourage you to rise as we read God's word together. From Psalm 113. Hear the reading of God's word. Praise the Lord. Praise those servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God? Who is seated on high? Who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of His people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. So far the reading of God's Word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I pray that You would give wisdom and guidance and counsel to this Your Word. Carry these words to the people gathered here this morning to mold them and shape them. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. A woman weeps. Another laughs and mocks her tears. Year after year, the woman weeps. Year after year, the laughter and the mocking bludgeon. The longing for identity is like no other. When our perceived identity is beaten, bruised, and torn, we too are left to weep. Each of us longs for acceptance, don't we? We long for acceptance. We long for value, for import, for worthiness. Many of our decisions, right or wrong, are motivated and impacted by this longing for acceptance and value. Or maybe upon the very need to be identified with something, someone. We strive to meet the standards that we believe define ourselves. We strive to meet the the standards that we believe define who we are, what we are, or what we should be. This consumes us and motivates us, breaks us, and oftentimes condemns us. The woman weeps because her identity is joined to the societal marker of childbearing. Hannah, in 1 Samuel chapter 1, longed for a child. She wept. Year after year, she wept because she was unable to conceive. Each year at the time of sacrifice, Hannah and her husband and her husband's other wives would go to a place of sacrifice. And each year, Hannah was bitterly reminded of her inability to conceive a child while the other wives were able to conceive. Her identity as a woman in the ancient world was just that. Are you able to conceive a child or not? And if not, you have little or no value. Her guilt and her shame drove her into a deep depression. For the word of the Lord tells us that she was so ashamed and guilty and desperate that she would not eat and she would not sleep. All she would do is weep. Contemporary terms, a severe depression. 
It's difficult, however, for us to understand the hurt and pain that Hannah experienced for some of us because that level of identity isn't necessarily how we identify ourselves in our contemporary context. Yet our misplaced identities look different. Some of us have an identical one, but many of us different. They seem different, yet at the very core they are the same. For we place our identities on other things, our ability to retire, our status, our wallets, our jobs, our kids, our knowledge, are all things that we place our identity into, aren't they? But what if we struggle with finances? Somehow we're not worthy. Somehow we don't quite measure up. What if our kids aren't all state athletes or band members? Somehow we as parents or them as children don't measure up. Because the world says everyone has to get to the NFL. Everyone has to be a millionaire. Otherwise you're not worth anything. What if I won't be able to retire? Or what side of the aisle am I on? Is that my identity? What side of a conversation or a topic am I on? Is that my identity? What is my identity? Just as the mocking wives told Hannah that she was worthless, so too we are told by those in our lives, the world, media, oftentimes we're not worth much. Because we don't have these things to our pedigree. We too are of little value. And many of us do weep. Many of us are racked with guilt and shame and know Hannah's place. It may not be childbearing, but it may be something else. And in that guilt and shame, we come to church every week. We go to work every day. And we go to school every day. And we're faced with the mocking laughs of those around us who say you don't measure up. What defines our identity? Who defines our identity? I think if we're honest with ourselves, and I'm honest with myself, it's not even so much the world outside that defines our identity, is it? For we mock ourselves. We mock and laugh at ourselves because we're not what we think we should be. And the guilt and the shame kick back in all over again. I don't measure up. I'm not good enough. I'm not rich enough. I don't have enough status. Hannah, through her tears, silently and quietly, prayed and cried. Prayed and cried. Prayed and cried to the Lord that she would conceive a child. And if she conceived, she would give her child back to the Lord for the rest of his or her days. Hannah's husband, Elkanah, had a special place in his heart for Hannah. More so than his other wives. And when they returned one year from the time of sacrifice, she did indeed conceive a child and she bore a son and she called him Samuel. And this son, Samuel, 
turn to be one of the last judges, the judge to anoint Saul as king, the judge to anoint David as king. And we know the story. But upon her conception, Hannah prayed a prayer. In chapter 2 of 1 Samuel 1, she sang a song of thanks and praise to the Lord. For out of her distress, out of the ashes, out of her barrenness, the Lord took care of her and provided for her and gave her a son. And in 1 Samuel 2.8, we hear these words. Listen carefully. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. Hannah could not do anything but praise. And those words should sound very familiar because the psalmist in 113 says almost exactly the same words. He recalls the song of Hannah and he says, He raises the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. And what's the response? Praise the Lord! I was once without child and now I have a child and praise the Lord. The psalmist hears the need of Hannah and reflects upon the same provision of the Lord to him. And interestingly enough, Psalm 113 is the second of five psalms that we call the Egyptian halal. Now, if you're paying attention, halal sounds a lot like another word that we know. Can you put it together? Hallelujah. Which means what? Praise the Lord. So these five psalms, 112 to 118, or 116, sorry, are five psalms that are praising the Lord for the Exodus. And the psalmist is connecting the Exodus to Hannah. For the Lord's provision. For once you didn't have a home, now you have a home. Once you didn't have children, Now you are a child. You see, Psalm 112 and 113 were traditionally sung right before the Passover meal. Right before the meal was served, these songs were sung. And as we know, the Passover lasted for a bit. And the last three psalms were sung at the conclusion of the the celebration feast. After the Passover was completed, So Psalm 112 and 113 were sung directly before and 114, 15, and 16 were sung at the conclusion. Or can we say that these are the songs sung by the people to remember not only the provision of the Son to Hannah, but what the Lord had provided in the Exodus, what He had done and looking forward to another Son, to the Messiah. Psalm 113 then is most likely the last song that Jesus sung before His Passion knowing all too well what lie before Him. He, Jesus, our Lord and Savior, sang these words. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap, knowing all too well what lies before Him, that He will soon face the ash heap. And He praised the Lord for lifting the poor and the needy. He praised the Lord for reaching into the brokenness of creation and lifting it up to glory. He did this knowing what was before Him. He did this knowing that He would soon be betrayed, beaten, bruised, abused, and hung on a tree. 
There is no God like this God. We use the term identity often, including already this morning. But I wonder if we, if I, really grasp the magnitude of true identity. This song, this song, sung as the people remembered the provision of the Lord for Hannah and for the people as they were taken from the ash heap of slavery and bondage, from the poverty of ruin and were given a land, a home, an identity as God's chosen people is the identity that we too weep for, that we desire. So the question, the, one of the questions I have for us this morning is, Christian, believer, what is your identity? Who are you? What are you? And I would say it's wrapped up in Psalm 113. It's the fact that there is no other God like our God. Because He's taken the poor and the needy from the ash heap of the bondage of sin. He's called you out of death and into life. He has brought you from an alien and a foreigner into His home. And He's called you a son of God. From on high He became lowly and took on flesh and died a sinner's death. He moved towards you. He moved towards me while we moved away from Him. He died. He died for you while you lived for something else. There is no other God like our God. This is why we praise Him. Because like Hannah, like the people who remember what the Lord had accomplished in Egypt, how He brought them into a land and gave them an identity, we remember what the Lord has provided for us in the person and the work of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Incredibly, however, if the story that a God without measure would sacrifice and die for you was not enough, the Lord in His Word in Psalm 113 gives us more reason to praise. It gives us even more reason and expounds upon the reality of what Jesus has done for us in this glorious psalm of praise. And it begs the question that I really have for us this morning is, is this, why do we praise the Lord? Or maybe just in common vernacular, why are you here this morning? Why are you here? Why do you praise? What has motivated you to be here this morning? Are you captured by the provision of the Lord this day? Are you captured by the reality that once you were not a people, but now you are a people? Are you captured that you are a chosen person just as Israel was a chosen race? Are you captured that He has made you a royal priest, a holy nation, and has adopted you, as we read this morning in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, to experience and to know all of the benefits of those becoming a son of God? Are you captured by that this morning? Is that why we are here today? Full transparency? Too often I come to church because it's my job. Why do you come to church? Are we captured by what the Lord has accomplished for us? Psalm 113 beckons us 
to be captured by that reality. To see that this indeed is our identity given to us by a God who is like no other. So why do we praise? This morning it's my desire, it's my prayer that we see the majesty, the glory, the provision of the Lord. It's my desire that through this psalm, that we're captivated by the rootedness of God's people. That through the centuries, that people have sung this song. That the saints of old have sung this song to recall, to remember, to be captured by the same reality that we have this day of what the Lord has done for us. That we're a part of something. That we're a part of something so much bigger than we dare imagine. That we join our hearts and our souls and our bodies and our voices with the saints of old, the saints of today and the saints of tomorrow to praise the Lord our God because He's given us a new identity in Him. A new identity in Jesus Christ. And so why do we praise the Lord? Because no one else is seated on high. In this glorious psalm, we're told that we're to praise the Lord because He's seated on high. This is the common phrase often used in Scripture to declare the person and the work of the Lord. In verse 4 of Psalm 113, the phrase that He is seated on high means at least, but not limited to, two things. First is authority, right? If someone is seated on high, that generally means they're the one in authority. The first thing the psalmist means when referring to the Lord is is that it is in direct relationship to His authority. Plainly and simply, there is no one else that is seated higher than the Lord our God. Secondly, His power. There was no other God or person that retains and wields the level of power that belongs to the Lord. We praise the Lord because there is no higher authority and there is no greater power that we can praise. If we give our praise to anything or anyone else, it is of limp praise and is of no import because there is nothing higher, nothing with more authority or power than the Lord our God. So if we praise something less than the Lord, it means little. For only one demands and deserves our true and honest praise. And that's the one seated on high. We give praise to the Lord God because there's no power that compares to the power of the Lord. When we think of power and authority, it is often in regards to what? I remember a number of years ago just watching our boys on on the playground and boys do what boys do, trying to determine who is king of the mountain or king of the playground, and they would fight and they would push, not, not overly hard, but they just would jostle for position in the playground. And it often was who's bigger and stronger is how they determined who had the power and authority. That's just not my boys, that's, that's boys. That's people. Who's bigger, stronger, who has more money, who has more power. But it's often in military terms as well. It's given a more dramatic appearance when we recall again that this is a song sung by the people of God who have just come out of the Exodus and remembering that event. For if we remember the Exodus, and I think we do, so I'm not going to belabor the point too much, Egypt was the most powerful and had the most authority 
in all of the known world. Pharaoh was the most powerful man who held all the authority. In the eyes of the world, this guy was it. There was the buck stopped with Pharaoh. And yet, with the power of a voice, the Lord swallowed the most powerful army in the world. He sits on high. And yet, we still strive to place our praise in other things. And our misplaced praise reveals the things in our lives that we think have power and authority. Or that we want to have power and authority in our lives. When Israel crossed the sea on dry land and saw the army swallowed, do you remember what their response was? Moses and Miriam did what? They sang a song. They sang a song of praise to the Lord for He had defeated what they thought was the most powerful and the most authoritative person they worshipped. And so, will you go on a bit of a journey here with me this morning? A journey that seeks to find what is it that we desire? Who or what has the authority and power in your life? This psalm is pleading with us this morning. It's pleading with us to enter into the throne room of God, a God that's like no other. Yet if we slow down for just a moment, what is it that we want? Can you think of it? What is it that you want? In our sin and our brokenness, we forget something. We forget our identity in Christ. We want, we desire to be praised. We want our identity to be in what we have accomplished, not what Jesus has accomplished. We want to be like God. Check that. We want to be God. We want people to praise us for who we are, what we are, and what we've accomplished. We want people's praise not to be to God, but to ourselves. Look at me. Look at what I've done. Look at my career. Look at my kids. Look at my resume. Look at my pocketbook. Look at all the things I've accomplished. And we seek the praise of men and the acknowledgement of others before we seek the Lord. This is the reality of our brokenness. We don't want to yield praise to the Lord. We want to receive it. This is how our first parents were tempted. This is the very core of the rebellion. This is the very core of who we are. If you eat this fruit, you will be like God. You will know everything. You have all the answers that you're looking for. If you make this choice, you will be powerful like God.
Is this the identity that we want? So maybe we can say, who is like the Lord our God? Are you? Am I? Are we? The answer is one that we know. (laughs) But the answer is not as always easy to recognize. For our desire to be praised often outshines the demand of the Lord to praise Him. Friends, this morning, who sits enthroned on high? Whose glory is above the heavens? Who is above the nation? Who has ultimate power and authority? The Lord God. There is no one like Him. Let us praise Him for He alone sits on high. The psalm also tells us that no one else reaches from on high. Why do we praise our God? Not only is He seated on high with all authority and power, but He reaches down from on high and reaches in to our lives. I heard a phrase this week that perhaps some of you know. I've never heard it before, but apparently it may be something that's fairly popular. The Lord is seated on high, but He hugs low. Couple this with what we read in verses 6 and 7. It says in verse 6 that He looks low. There's no other God that has the power and authority to be seated on high, but there's also no other God from from that position reaches down, looks down, hugs us in our stuff. What does that mean? I know what those words mean in English, but what does this mean to us today, tomorrow? What does it mean for us as we go about our weeks Can I take you back just really quickly to Psalm 8 that we studied earlier in the summer? Psalm 8, where we saw that the Lord is far above the galaxies, right? Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name. You are above the heavens. You are above the stars. You are above the universe. You put the stars in their places and set the planets in motion. And here this God sits above them and governs and has authority and power even over the universe. So here in Psalm 113, we see that He sits enthroned with power and authority above the universe. And then it says to us, He reaches down. He reaches through the universe, through the galaxy, through the stars, through the courses of the planets, through the atmosphere, through the clouds, through the smoke, through the laughter, through the tears. And He embraces you. He looks low. He knows the details of your life. He knows the things that you try to keep hidden. He knows your desire to be praised. He sees you just as He saw Hannah. He hears you just as He heard Hannah. He loves you. Take that in. In your brokenness, in your depression, in your hurt, in your tears, 
he heard the soft and quiet tears of Hannah. He heard the prayers of a desperate, weeping woman. And he took action. He reached low and he gave her a son. There is no other like our God. I know many of your stories. I know many of your joys. I've experienced them with you. I know many of your hurts. I've experienced them with you. But I don't know all of them. I don't know most likely the level to which you want to be your own God. I don't know the level to which you really hurt. I don't know the level to which you pray quietly at night to the Lord as Hannah does. I don't know the level of your fear, but I know this. There is no other God like our God. For there is no other who not only looks low, but hugs low. For he not only looks and reaches, but he took on flesh. He stooped and became obedient to flesh and to death. With this flesh, he embraces you this day. He takes you in by the pinions of his wings. In order that he would know the intimate details that he would know the levels of your fear and your joys. That he would know the small things, the big things. That he would know the whispers and the screams. I love these words from Jeremiah 31. The Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. The Lord has made himself near in the person of Jesus Christ. He bore our sin and sorrow and continues this day to be faithful to you with an everlasting love. I wonder, do you know this Savior today? I wonder, is this your identity? Praise the Lord. And lastly, we praise the Lord because no one else lifts us up. The Lord is seated on high with power and authority. The Lord looks down and hugs low. But the story doesn't stop even there. For in his embrace, what does he do? This psalm amazingly culminates in something that no other can do. He lifts you up because he was lifted up. He lifts you from a place of devastation and isolation. Look at verses 8 and 9 with me. In these verses, we have the marvelous reversal of the gospel, don't we? For in the first part of Psalm 113, we see these things. This woman has no children. There is no home. There's isolation. There's desolation. There's, there's death. There's dust. There's ash. And in the conclusion of the psalm, something reverses. Something glorious happens. The one that was in the ash heap is now lifted to royalty. The one that was in the dust is now in a pristine throne room of heaven. That's your identity. But these images are deeper than even at first blush. Have you ever thought about what an ash heap is? Again, we know English words. But what is an ash heap? What, what is it talking about here in Psalm 113? I'm going to do this as quickly as what I can. In Old Testament, right, in sacrificial Levitical law, it wasn't always the, the, the bloody 
sacrifice that people did. Often what would happen is that people would bring a sacrifice, an offering to the priest, and they would burn it. Well, you've all sat around a campfire before. What happens to things that burn? They turn to ash. If something has been burned to ash, and we even know there are in some religious traditions where there is a cross of ash placed on someone's forehead to commemorate and to remember death. Ash is equated then with death. For what the priests would do is they would take the ash of all of these burnt sacrifices and they literally would, would, would collect it and gather it and they would put it in a pile outside of the temple and some priest then had to remove the ash heap. But if you are in the ash heap, you are covered in dust. You are covered in gray dust of death. And so what's the psalmist really saying here? The Lord takes you from death and gives you life. Takes you from being covered in ash. But you would not enter into the throne room of any king covered in the ashes of death. No, you would be clothed in royal robes. You would be, take a shower. You would be washed clean and you would be presented as holy and righteous. This is the, what Psalm 13 is saying. You are no longer there, but you are now here. This is the amazing reversal of the gospel. From death to life. A visible illustration is the ash heap of our sin and our death. The psalmist said that God who has all power and authority, who sits on high and looks down upon you, now does something remarkable. The psalmist places his new identity and the congregation that sings places their identity as residing not in the ashes, not in death, but in life in a home, with a family, with children, and a, and a congregation. And so the Lord who took on flesh embraces us and moves us from death to life. He takes our weeping, our pain, our guilt, and our shame. And it's lifted from the grave and so too lifts you on the third and glorious day to a resurrection to give you a new identity. This is how the psalmist concludes. You are no longer covered in the ash or tears. You are no longer without a home. You are no longer unimportant, but you, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, are given a home, a family. You are given value, importance. You are given worth. You are a child of the Lord God Almighty. This, this is your identity. And nothing, nothing can take that from you. He is like no other. Because He loves, because His love and grace for you is like no other. And so because He is like no other, we praise Him like no other. People of God, praise the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank You for this reality that You have taken us from death to life and You've given us an identity, a hope. And so Lord, as we come to this table, prepare our hearts and our lives to experience this reality, this identity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.